Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. How well do you know yourself? It is said we are but a collection of memories, interactions, and an ego. But does the way we are experienced by others align with our view of ourselves? In episode 14 of The B-Side... I discuss this topic with Joe Hart, an organizational psychologist with a passion for understanding what makes us tick, our motivations, and the behaviors that lead us to success in life and our careers. Joe has a Bachelor of Psychology with Honours and a Master's degree in Organizational Psychology from the University of New South Wales. He's worked for Gallup, Chandler McLeod, and Samsung as an executive coach, senior consultant, and employee engagement expert. He now runs his own consultancy, True Perspective, where he helps people from a wide range of industries find their core strengths and be more effective as leaders. We talk about the first step of personal development being a choice between living in blissful ignorance or confronting the truth, akin to taking the red or blue pill in the Matrix. He's a fascinating guy with a really eclectic background. We had a profound and insightful conversation, and I really found it quite helpful given the craziness that's going on in the world right now. So settle in. It's a great episode, and I really enjoy the chat. I hope you do too. Cheers. We're here with Joe Hart. Joe Hart is a dear friend of mine. We kick each other's butts at Kyokushin Karate. He's also an amazingly smart psychologist. He knows a lot about what's going on in the world right now. (laughs) Joe... How are you, my friend? I am very well. Thank you for that. Uh, probably, um, I don't really deserve that introduction, but um, appreciate it nonetheless. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's you that kicks my ass more than me kicking your ass. At the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, how have you been? I mean, it's crazy, crazy times at the moment, isn't it? There's a lot going on in the world, a lot for us to unpack and discuss. You're in a suit. I know you've gone back to work. How's that all going for you? <laughs> Look, it's, it's interesting. I mean... I think I'll start by saying, um, you know, I've, I've been sleeping all right, um, and that's a good start. I think <laughs> often when there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress going around, uncertainty, uh, sleep is the first thing to fall off the off the agenda. And, and so, you know, rather than say I've been trying to pivot or I've been trying to um, work my way through these unprecedented times, uh, let's just go with I'm sleeping all right. Look, some of it's been good. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say some of it has mm. been really good in in that having this opportunity to circuit break everything, step back and evaluate, well, what do I want to keep versus what do I want to let fall by the wayside? Is, um, is, I think it's been a really opportunistic time to heal. Yeah, I, I found the whole situation quite interesting. At first, it was almost like uh, there was this disbelief and it took us some time to understand exactly what was going on or the, the impact and the gravity mm. of exactly what was going on. Then we moved into this phase of oh shit, so this isn't this isn't sort of going anywhere anytime soon. Let's how do we cope with this? And then we got into this. This is normal. This is completely normal. Like I like this. Like don't take it away from me. How has it yeah. sort of changed for you? So, at work? Uh, so so look, I'm I'm heading back into the city not because I have to, um, but because I I feel like reconnecting with uh, some of my clients there is has been. Um, really nice just to get out of home well your clients what what mm. are 
what's their mental state like? What are they thinking? What are they feeling? What are they actually doing with regards to their work and those situations? You know, a lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of people um, um, are now looking for jobs in a really, really tough market. Yeah, look, it depends on um, the industry that they're in. So Mm. for those that are in the more affected end, it's been tough. Like, it's Mm. been really tough for them. They're dealing with stand-downs and layoffs and really difficult conversations. So you can see the burden on them really rearing uh, its its head. And I I think now that they've been in a really um, reactive, uh, adrenaline-fueled, uh, state of mind that you know it's necessary that they've, they've been in that state but um, I think at some point they're going to come off that high and they're going to experience the backlash of all of yeah. that adrenaline driven behaviour and I, I think that's probably what I'm more concerned about what, what's to come, the wave yeah. that follows, yeah because this has all been unknown but there'll be a point at which um, some people will get back to normal and others are going to be left behind. And, and that's, yeah. that's probably going to be the struggle. You know, there's so much stuff out there mm. discussing the way people have reacted, those who are affected and others who have sort of uh, dodged a bullet, so to speak, in that regard. Mm. And there being, you know, survivor's guilt or the equivalent of survivor's guilt. And I actually, it's interesting. Survivor guilt, that is, that's definitely a thing. I, I think people are experiencing the opposite. You know, it's almost like... Um, survivor gratitude you know for, <laughs> yeah. for, for those that are they've seen others you know really get affected by this um they're like they're more thankful for their for their position and for their job and the fact that they're not uh, facing the turmoil that others are having but that's been my experience mm. people really thankful like obviously yeah. empathizing with those who have gone through the tough times and doing what they can to support yeah. and raise awareness of those issues but just being thankful for yeah. Having a job and having some form of security. So I was just speaking with a client today, um, looking at some employee engagement data. And it's the first set of employee engagement data I've seen, seen post-COVID. And I think that'll, that'll actually uh, show some really interesting trends moving forward to see organisations that have been measuring engagement pre-COVID and then post-COVID and mm. see what that does. I mean, one hypothesis is it could really um, impact engagement negatively. And, and draw it down, you know, there's people sort of revert to more survival type behavior, which I've seen in some cases. Um, but then in others, we might see them, uh, you know, show a spike in engagement because they're, they're experiencing mm. that sense of um, gratitude for the fact gratitude. that they're, they're still employed. So, mm. you know, jury's out. In the case of today and the client I was speaking with, the, the engagement results were really high, but they didn't have mm. any um, comparison. So, we're, we're, you know, we can't really draw a conclusion yeah, from that. Yeah. It, it, I'll use the word. It's unprecedented. <laughs> Before we get into all of this stuff, because you know, I'd love to talk to you about employee engagement. Let's get into your background, who you are, what you do, where it all started for Joe Hart. Sometimes hard to know where to start with, with a question <laughs> like that. But um, look, I'm actually uh, originally a bit of a country boy. So I, um, I grew up predominantly in Lismore and that uh, associated area. So, um, yeah, I was born in Byron Bay and then um, shifted to Lismore sort of by the time I was five years old and um, spent, um, spent most of my youth around that area. Went to, you know, a bunch of different schools, um, mm. primary schools, high schools, um, and landed in, uh, landed in Sydney um, once I finished my HSC and um, enrolled in 
not psychology. Interesting. Um, I actually enrolled in uh, anatomy originally. Oh, really? I wanted to wow. be an anatomist. You know, thought that that's what I was going to be. I was going to be working with cadavers and, you know, thought that there was something interesting about that. Maybe watched a few too many episodes of CSI. And, um, and then probably two months in at uni, I met with a couple of lecturers and decided, no, that's not what I want to do. So um, started exploring, you know, took a few different courses, did some Chinese, did some uh, philosophy, did some psychology. You know, it's almost like... Um, it's like what you have to do. It's a rite of passage at uni. You know, you've got to oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, absolutely. You know, it didn't really do well at all um, at anything, to be honest, and had a lot of fun. And, um, <laughs> and then, you know, probably bumbled my way through. I think the moment of truth was um, when I went to Japan with my girlfriend at the time, now current wife, um, went to Japan and I didn't defer from uni. I basically failed every subject that semester. <laughs> and I was I was in Japan, came back and thought, oh, what am I going to do now? I should probably finish uni. Um, oops. Now I've got a weighted average mean that is really, really bad and it's going to limit some of my options. So I sort of had to dig my way out of a hole. And so I worked really hard, pushed through and um, graduated um, my, my three-year psychology degree, then decided I wanted to take it seriously and got into honours and then from honours did my master's in organisational psychology and then went straight into the workforce. That's absolutely fantastic. So I, I sort of omitted a big chunk of the story in there and that was the, the fact that I, I had my first kid um, in honours year. So the stakes were mm. high. The, the, mm. the, the reason to, to do well um, became something beyond myself. So, yeah. you know, if you fail for yourself, it's, it's okay. It's okay. But, yeah. If you fail and let others down, it, it's, it's a lot harder to swallow. You know, it's interesting. I remember having a conversation with my uncle um, who, you know, he's a photographer and he's very creative. Mm. And um, he came over to my, my flat one day and he saw he saw it at my, my computer. Back in those days, we, we had CRT monitors. So it was one of those big-ass monitors. And in the middle of the monitor, it had um, 72.5, a number, 72.5. Yeah. And he said, oh, what's, what's, the, what's with the number, like, staring back at you? I said, oh, yeah, that's, that's the, the weighted average mean I need to get in order oh, wow. to get wow. into, into honours. And he said, oh, but it's only 72.5. Like, why, would, wouldn't you just put 80 there? I said, yeah, but it's not real. Yeah. 80's, yeah. Not, 80's not real. That's not what I need. I need 72.5. And he's like, oh, no, I don't understand that logic. And, and for me, it's the opposite. You know, I get... Uh, shoot for the stars and you land on the moon but for me I'm like if you want to go to the moon go to the moon like that's that's the plan so what do you need to do to get there so it's more realistic and it's I've never been a fan of um, sort of especially with KPIs and setting targets for people when it comes to motivation we trick ourselves it's like the false deadline oh I know get it to me on Tuesday when I really need it for Thursday no it's on Thursday then we'll work towards Thursday and that's just, um, I think it's a far better way to motivate people. Well, it just, it, it encourages honesty, you know, and I just hate this kind of cushioning deadlines and all that bullshit, oh. you know, just tell me when yeah. you need it and don't patronize me. So after, after you trip mm. in Japan and after you graduated mm. with your master's mm. degree, what, what happened next? So I actually, I actually landed my first professional job and, and that was with, um, Gallup. So Gallup's a, 
an organization that specializes in um, polling is what most people know it for. Um, but they, mm. they also um, have one of the largest databases in the world on employee engagement. Why employee engagement? What is it? And why are organizations so focused on raising yeah. or reacting to declining employee engagement? Yeah, so, so look, Gallup was um, supposedly the first organization to coin the term employee engagement. And how they define that is a psychological connection to someone or something in, um, in the organization. And so, mm. so that could be a connection with your manager, a connection with your team, uh, it could be a connection to the purpose of the organization. And, um, and they linked it, not from a, a feel-good factor, but they started with performance. So they started with what actually drives um, uh, performance in this organization, i.e., what does the best sales team look like um, from a numbers perspective and work backwards mm. from there. And they differentiated right. what were the statements that you could ask um, or that people could agree with that linked to high performance. And so there's, yeah. there's 12 statements that, um, that summarize employee engagement and they sound like, so the first statement is, I know it's expected of me at work, right? And that bears the, the greatest load in terms of uh, accounting for variability in employee mm-hmm. engagement within a team context through to, um, you know, this last year I've had an opportunity uh, to, to learn and grow. So it's, it, it, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, it yeah. starts with the basics, like the materials and equipment, the expectations of your role, and it builds right through to, you know, as Maslow would say, self-actualization. But in, um, in the Gallup terminology, it's, you know, someone's talked to me about my progress and I've had an opportunity to learn and grow. I didn't realise they, yeah. they had coined the term employee engagement. So yeah. after Gallup, where, where did you go? So I spent seven years um, at Gallup, so a big chunk of my, wow. my early career. And then mm. um, after that, shifted to uh, Chandler McLeod. And so Chandler McLeod mm. is an Australian, Australian business. Um, and really, when you think about the, the consulting model that Gallup use, it's very much um, uh, confined to their metrics which is something that I've carried forward. Um, obviously, employee engagement and then polling and the world poll data that they, they measure. Um, Chandler McLeod is predominantly around uh, psychometric assessment for selection and development. So I spent a, a few years working with uh, Chandler McLeod and then post Chandler McLeod stepped out and started my own business. I guess the, the thread for me throughout my whole career has been really fascinated by executive coaching. And so I had a lot of, a lot of uh, exposure to that at, at Gallup. And really, that, that's where I learned the craft and enabled me to, to go a bit deeper with it. And I just felt a real connection to it. And then, um, and then at Chandler McLeod, continued that on and expanded it into outplacement. Uh, by and large, um, it morphed into um, leadership development and me really wanting to help people uh, harness that opportunity to, um, to grow and expand in who yeah, they are. That's fantastic. What are some of the things people might not know about you? So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, I don't talk much about art and, and how much I was an artist. I think a lot of people would assume I, I'm in IT. They look at me and they think, oh, you're an IT guy or something like that. So when I say no, I spend a lot of my time in, in my youth focused on graphic arts and visual arts. I was actually a graffiti artist, so here's a fact that I've never written about, and um, there you I, go. I could dig out yeah. some evidence. I did the first legal graffiti art mural in Lismore with a mate of Fantastic. mine. Fantastic. We appealed to the, the local uh, council, 
and we had to meet with the mayor and we had to put a proposal in and they actually endorsed it and we got funding so that we could go buy the spray paint and we did it as part of the um, the year of the youth in 1999 and, um, <laughs> and so that was really satisfying um, to be able to do yeah, such a yeah. large scale arch work but do it legally the irony yeah. was the, the newspapers came to do a little cover story on it the day uh, it was on a weekend and so I didn't expect them to be there and the day that I was down there to actually do a separate artwork that wasn't endorsed by the project, <laughs> that was the day the newspapers came and they actually oh, snapped no. a photo of me in uh-huh. front of it and it made the front page of the local newspaper and it wasn't so that even wasn't legal. legal. It wasn't that wasn't a legal one. That wasn't. Oh, no. But, what did you put but, up? What was your tag? So I, my, my tag was really um, a bit different. Um, so I, my tag was Grace. And the, the, the line that went underneath that was the execution of flow. And I haven't actually <laughs> shared that with anybody before. So there yeah. you go, you've got some insight. Awesome. And I used to always um, draw a character. Um, and that character was, was a clown character. And, and cool. that sort of links back to, to my, my dad. My dad a, a prof, was a professional clown. And, and so that sort of made its way into my visual art. And so that, that actually Your dad was a me. professional clown. <laughs> Yes. Isn't that amazing, man? So it's in your blood, this creativity really is. You had never spoken to me about this, but I knew there was bubbling just beneath the surface. There was this whole world of creativity, and that's why I really have wanted to speak to you. Talk to me yeah. a little bit about that, growing up in a household where uh, you know, look, you're a graffiti um, artist, your dad's a clown. Yeah, he was a, he was a musician predominantly. So, I mean, music was his thing. He used to play a banjo yeah. as, he was, yeah. um, as he was doing his shows. He wasn't. He wasn't really um, into magic. He could juggle, but you know, mm. not not amazingly. He was. I think he was the first one that taught me. But it was basic three ball stuff. It wasn't incredibly uh, amazing. But um, gifted as an actor, like an incredibly gifted actor. He was yeah. phenomenal in terms of his ability to command an audience and comical genius. He was also a puppeteer as well. So you know, mm. and this is another thing that I probably um, I didn't share that much around when I was 15 um, we used to do um, puppet shows at the local oh, wow. car market yeah. so you know he was he was sort of the star of the show and we, yeah. we did the story uh, three billy goats gruff and he oh, played really? the troll and and I did three goats but um, yeah that was glove puppets that was quite interesting I used to love puppet shows as a kid yeah something about it just there being yeah. present it was such a, a tactile kind of form of entertainment as as a puppeteer you can actually see the audience basically it's um it's this veil so so the back of the um the theater space has um you know it's got light shining on it and it reflects to the audience so they they just see a a shiny screen but you can see straight through it as a puppeteer so the powerful thing is you can actually react to the audience and their emotions and through the veil and and i think that metaphor actually is a really um a really uh, apt way to describe clowning right dad used to talk about the the, the difficulty that he had um, processing the emotion right because he he's there as an entertainer and and the idea of a clown you know you know this is the stereotype sad clown right you've got yeah. a clown that's there to you know be someone who brings joy and happiness but ultimately he's walking home or going home experiencing all of this sadness being reflected back to him and, yeah. and I, it was interesting because I'd observe 
you know, I'd follow him around as a kid and I'd see him perform and he would never perform to me because, you know, obviously he knew who I was. So I'd watch yeah. the audience and I'd watch him. So it was sort yeah. of bizarre. If I, if I think back on it, it was really quite weird um, yeah. sort of watching him do that. I, I don't think there was a lot of joy in it, to be honest. It was, um, yeah. it was a way for him to make a living. He, he enjoyed it, but, but there was this deep sadness that came with it. Did you have certain paraphernalia around the house that reminded you daily that your dad was an entertainer and a performer? Oh, yeah. So he used to um, have marionette puppets. Um, oh. I mean, absolutely. It's like the clown gear was everywhere. When did you pick up the juggling hobby? Yeah, so when I, when I, when I was seven, I think I started juggling. Dad, Dad first showed me how and then didn't yeah. really do much with it. But it wasn't until I'd, I'd shifted to high schools, actually, in year eight. I went from mm. Kadena High School in Lismore to Mullumbimby. So that, that followed me uh, moving, moving out of my house with my mum and sisters in with my dad. Your parents split, did they, and you moved in with you? Yes, yeah, they split yeah. when I was uh, four. Sort of we'd switched households from, you know, early ages and gone with dad for a bit and then mum. But then when I was 12, um, I made that shift, 12, sort of 13, made that shift away from um, my mum and my sisters to, to move with my dad. In terms of juggling, I went to Mullumbimby High School and I saw some, some kids there um, juggling in the schoolyard. And it wasn't just, you know, you know three balls. It was really full-on, um, you know, I- impressive stuff. And I was instantly taken by it. And wanted to um, wanted to, to figure out how to do it, so I introduced myself and said I want to learn how to do that, and like like I did with my seventy two point five and and yeah. I, I took focus and, and yeah really got intrigued by it and uh, and went quite deep into to juggling and um, and all of all of what was associated with that, which um, which I've kept on and I still do these days. You've written about it and you've drawn comparisons to um, mindfulness and mm. focus. Yeah, I realise like in terms of engagement and flow and fascination, that curiosity to understand how things work really is uh, what I apply to everything that I do. And yeah. I've got to be interested. And, um, and obviously people is where I, I focus my attention now. Yeah. What are you doing now? What's um, keeping mm. you busy these days? Yeah, so some of my clients, um, so I mean, I work with people, senior senior leaders in um, pretty much every industry. You know, I've got some that are, that are in, in tourism and uh, entertainment. I've got some that are in health, that sort of spread. They're usually people that are wanting to, to develop themselves and um, have an opportunity to, to really understand how they can uh, bring more of themselves to what they do. Part of that is, is helping source feedback. And so, you know, I use a model um, that I call True Perspective, uh, which is enabling them to see themselves the way the, rest of the world sees them. And, and so that, that's about sourcing through their, their permission people that they want to hear from. And so I interview those people, I gather that, mm. that feedback like a 360, but I facilitate that process and enable them to um, get, the, get the truth. And, um, mm. you know, I, I almost said when you asked me what, what's my beast mode, and that is um, delivering tough messages and being able to be really honest with people. Um, yeah. But what drives that is a curiosity to want to understand the truth. Mm. And, and through that curiosity, which is why I chose that, it, it enables me to unveil that which they're ready to see. And, um, and sometimes that means people see themselves for the first time. And um, sometimes they like that, sometimes they don't. 
Why, why is the truth important as far as personal growth from a professional standpoint? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, actually. It's like the red or blue pill. Why can't I just stay in the matrix? And you can. You can. Ignorance is bliss, you know? Yeah, you, you absolutely can. And I, I think um, some people choose to do that. And not everyone, not everyone is up for evolving themselves as a leader or who they want to be in the world. Sometimes the response... Um, I get or others get is oh I don't care what people think of me you know take it or leave it and I never believe people when they say that because ultimately if you if you want to make an impact on the world if you want to do something that matters you you better be sure that how people are experiencing you and what you do is aligned with what it is that you're trying to achieve Mm. Um, so it's a it's important to understand not necessarily that what someone else sees and experiences is true but that's that's true for them and so to see yourself from the outside in is a really important way to to get closer to who you are and understand yourself um too often i think we we go deep within ourselves um and lose touch lose touch with how we're being experienced so it's it's really important to to step outside of that sometimes and take a different perspective and so that that's how i facilitate the process yeah but it's not for the faint-hearted. So it's for people who have identified that in order to grow, whether that be as a leader or someone mm. in more of the transitory middle management position, in order to grow, in order to take that next step. That's it. It could be someone that's struggling with confidence. It could be someone that's reached a ceiling in their career and they're not um, breaking through. It could be someone that's um, you know getting consistent feedback that... Um, you know the, the how they're coming across isn't isn't mm. actually um, helpful in the workplace. Um, so it could be a uh, someone who's an up and coming leader who's doing really well. Um, they just want to accelerate that process. You know, I use met- the metaphor of juggling. You know, learning to juggle it's it's a pattern. Right? You've got to pick up on that pattern. You know, most people pick up pick up two balls and, and you know they imagine the the clown juggling three balls in a circle, and so they juggle two balls that way. Um, but that's that's actually not an effective pattern to pick up when you're first learning how to do it. So so mm. part of the process is re-establishing that um, that behavioural um, pattern in your brain to enable you to expand and develop. So if truth is essential in order to grow as a professional, what is it about truth that confronts us? Like, where does that fear of the truth come from? Is it a protection mechanism? Is it ego? Can you mm. talk to me about that? Because I can then go into <laughs> a few other things that I really want to ask yeah. you around. Some of the things that are happening happening mm. currently. Yeah, it's it's such a big question. Um, and it's why, I mean, truth really is my, my big word. It's, it's you know, I, people have been debating it for millennia and they will continue to debate it for millennia to come. And I think what makes truth so confronting is um, it 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 brings about um, it brings about loss, right? And often we don't want to tell someone what we really think or what we really feel um, because we might lose that friendship. We might be judged. Um, we might be seen as um, we might be seen as uh, speaking out of turn. So, so being able to be honest, um, you know, no one wants to put their, their neck on the chopping block, so to speak. No one wants to be the person to stand up in a meeting and tell the CEO that they're, they're, they're on one, 
or they're, they're off the planet. No one wants to take that mm-hmm. role. Um, and so it's associated with threat. And we're just not geared to, to run toward threat. And truth represents mm. that. I'm not an expert on this topic, and I'm not sure if you are, but there's a certain segment of society that have gone, this is our truth. We are living this day to day. Now's the time to do something about it. And I think that's the first phase, isn't it? You know, you have to acknowledge there's a problem yeah. or you acknowledge what is. And I Correct. think it's not always a problem. It's just acknowledging what is. Yeah, this is, this is where my truth is not always shared with your truth. And, and that's always mm. going to be there. That's always going to be the case. And, um, and I think when we see, you know, racial tension blow up, um, that's just a reflection of, of the difference in, in uh, sentiment or opinion that people, uh, that people harbour. And unfortunately, it bubbles over. I think the fact that the response and, and a lot of um, what it's turning into is, is maybe related to a lot of the frustration and tension and challenges that people are experiencing following COVID-19. Everyone's got this tension that I think has been, um, you know, amplified um, at the moment. And, and that's, um, I, to be honest, I don't know why. I don't know why it is. But, um, yeah, it's sad to see that that's, those sorts of things are happening and, and how it's really penetrating society. We started by talking about the benefits of lockdowns and restrictions, being able to self-reflect and really think about things that um, you value. Would you say that people have had the time as well to think about the things that are wrong and look for ways we can fix any inequalities or um, societal issues that have reared their head with time to contemplate? You know, one of my favourite questions working with clients and and coaching is, um, you know, what's most important to you? And Mm. strangely, a lot of people find that difficult to answer. And I think uh, with COVID-19, where they may have lost their jobs, um, they're not being connected with their families and friends or they've, they've even lost loved ones in some cases um, you know with my clients that has been the case where they've lost family members and not been able to be at their their funeral that necessarily puts on a pedestal what's most important to you it yeah. very quickly becomes apparent to you and so if if um, you know racial equality or justice um, is something that's really important to you at this point in time that you're going to stand up and fight for that. I find I find people getting really uh, triggered by certain things as well. It's just find like what's important to you. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, they want to want to undermine what others think are important to them, even if it doesn't really affect them. So, you know, the whole Black Lives Matters movement has triggered a lot of people. They, you know, all lives matter and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. They're not saying mm-hmm. they're not saying um, white or Asian or or Middle Eastern lives don't matter. They're just saying black lives matter because in the Western predominantly white world, there are some issues and, and black lives matter bring those to attention. Yeah, I mean, if, if people have a different and, and sometimes contradictory opinion to us, now of course it's going to trigger us. It's going to create, you know, what we call cognitive dissonance. It's this gap between what we believe and, and what they believe. And you know, for whatever reason, um, if they get attention out of that, if they get following, if they get influence, um, that someone's going to be annoyed by that. And they say, well, why is it that someone listens to you? That's not necessarily true. And if we we talk about truth, 
Um, yeah. My version of truth is not necessarily the same as yours. If we can have a discourse and communicate in an honest and truthful way, that will only help break down any misunderstandings with regards to the, the, the truth I'm living versus the truth you're living. If I, if I can understand your interest rather than your position, yeah, I'm going to be in a much better position to, to be able to um, come to an agreement or, or see where you're coming from. And that's, that's that idea of getting outside of myself, right? Mm. Yeah, so seeing it from your perspective is actually seeing myself. How do you do that? Let's get to the sort of nitty-gritty of how you do that. How do you help people see themselves for what they are? How do you get them to acknowledge their truth from an objective standpoint? Well, the first question is, do you want to? Mm. It starts there. And, and that's a bit like um, taking the red pill in the matrix. It's about going in and being able to um, see and discover potentially scary stuff, you know, to see what's really going on and open your eyes to, to the truth. You know, if your answer to that is no, I, I like my steak and I, I like in, uh, eating it. You stay in blissful ignorance and you, you continue um, by taking the blue pill. And that's it. Once you've taken that pill, right, and you're in there and you say, yes, I want your help. How do we see the truth? That's where, um, that's where it gets it gets a bit more tricky because it's it's not just a one-stop shop. It's forever, right? Mm-hmm. The second mm-hmm. that you take take that step, it's, it's the relentless commitment. It's not just, I'm going to do this for the next three months and then decide that I've had enough and I want to go back. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't undo it. You just can't. You've got to keep growing and expanding and pushing and it's always uncomfortable. Uh, complacency mm-hmm. is, is the enemy of truth. Mm. You know, that's complacency is in effect lying to yourself about what's most important to you. And what are some of the ways you would keep people out of the matrix? So if you keep the effects, we're going to use this red and blue pill um, yeah. metaphor or analogy. Yeah, yeah so, so something that uh, a reminder um, that I use is, is some form of daily practice. And it could be, it could be anything that you, you integrate into your world. But something that I've adopted is, is juggling and it's a form of active meditation and the reason why I, I feel like that's so important is because it's um, it's forever improving it's it's something that you can always either sink back into flow with or you can push yourself beyond uh, your current level of capability so you're ebbing and flowing between that which is challenging and that which is which is easy and that mm. that sort of sweet spot right in between is is where you want to be too much stress and and that's distress you know not enough um you know that's 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 not going to help you grow Uh, but you need to be able to ebb and flow between one and the other and so that's that's one uh strategy whatever it is for you if it's exercise if it's meditation if it's uh, juggling is what i like but um it's not for everyone so it's something that you do every day that grounds you and realigns your body and your mind um, I think that's that's a really powerful way to to start. Is that because we create patterns and biases for ourselves that we identify with? Someone once said, "Every single day could be a new reality for you." The only thing mm. that keeps us our sense of self is merely ego and memory. Yeah, that's right. And I found that statement incredibly powerful. Our sense mm. of self, who we are, who we. Mm. James is really an ego and a memory. That's it. Absolutely. It's, um, 
it's such a, a, a fascinating concept, you know, this, this idea of self and, um, and the fact that you are um, who you are forever. Yeah, okay, that's true. You know, who you were when you were 10 is the same as who you are when you're, you know, 39. Um, mm. But to think that you haven't shifted or evolved over that period of time is scary, right? Well, mm. absolutely, you have. You've developed and you've shifted. And um, the only way, the only way you can develop beyond where you currently are, is by stepping into the unknown. And mm. um, part of that is, I, I think, seeing yourself and seeing your reflection. And so, so getting back to the question of how do you do that? How do you get perspective? How do you identify the truth? You've got to be willing to ask um, the question. Uh, mm. I want to see myself. Second, you've got to be willing to accept what comes back. Right? Mm. what's on the other side of the door once you walk through it what's waiting for you and and if you don't accept that as valid you're, you're rejecting the opportunity to grow mm. and so you have to accept it uh, whatever the reflection is and and that's you know that's that takes uh, that's looking in the mirror how do you build that reflection is that with uh, the input of people that might know you work yeah. colleagues and so on the first step is to identify people you want to hear from. And obviously, this is not um, not about hearing from people that you think are, are going to gloss over the, the the truth. It's people that you want to be honest with you. If you were to ask them directly, um, they may not be as forthcoming as you would hope. But if it's indirect, if it's through somebody else that's interpreting what they're saying, allowing them to to um, just answer, um, something happens. Something enables them to to go to another level in terms of the feedback that they want to give. And um, ultimately, um, it's allowing them to express what it is that they want you to know. What do you do with that information? You've taken the pill, you've, you've gone through the various steps, you've looked at yourself, you've centred yourself, you've got input from uh, third parties. You're starting to build this picture of who you are as a person. Correct, correct. And, and so... So first thing is to evaluate, does that align with who you, who you think you are, how you see yourself? Because if it doesn't, if there's a misalignment and, and you either see yourself on a, a different level to what other people see, like you see, your, uh, see yourself much more positively or much more negatively in some cases, then, then obviously it's, um, it's about closing that, that discrepancy and saying, well, there's something that happens between how you present yourself to the world and then how people experience you in it. Um, so there's some it's not translating correctly and so it's about identifying uh, what happens with that and then um, and what do you want to do to, to correct it sometimes there's perfect alignment and how you, you see yourself and how people experience you is beautifully aligned and so it's about elevating that and um, uh, allowing you to, to cast that um, that message to more people there seems to be three groups just broadly uh, one where there's a misalignment two where there's a perfect alignment and three where there's work to be done in yeah. creating an alignment yeah what what just quickly what are some of the ways yeah. you can yeah. yeah so so if someone if someone say someone's really um, lacking confidence and they see themselves in a really negative light um, but everyone that they uh, nominated as their key stakeholders sees them really positively and says I want them to know that they just need to believe in themselves, right? Mm. Part of the work that we then do is, is within that person, enabling them to overcome any of the blockers or any of the, 
the talk, the negative self-talk that they display um, that holds them back. And usually yeah. it's, it, you know, I hate to be cliche about this, but usually it comes back to childhood and something that's happened to them that they've yeah. carried, uh, an interpretation that they've had of an experience in life, um, what they've made that mean about them, right? Yeah. Uh, not being able to distinguish between what happened and and then what they translated that to mean. So that would be one in terms of misalignment where they're negatively misaligned. Uh, they see themselves negatively versus everyone else seeing them positively. The opposite is an interesting one where someone might see themselves really positively, but that's not how people rate them. They they actually sure. see them like, and, um, you know, this is your, your typical sort of... Um, pop psychology narcissist you know someone that sees you know a leader who sort of big notes themselves and talks himself up but everyone sort of when they're out of the room says oh god i can't handle that guy or that girl she's she's really difficult to be around um, they'd be really confronted confronted by this though wouldn't they and what, what's their general reaction when they're told that there is this yeah. misalignment usually it's um one of uh disbelief and oh yeah well you know that that doesn't make sense that's that's just their opinion so that's the why the first question is really important do you want to know right mm-hmm. if they don't want yeah. to know if they actually legitimately don't want to uh to to go deeper then that's not gonna that's that's <laughs> spot the narcissist <laughs> yeah that's right and and look nar- narcissism no thanks just um, give me the blue pill see you mate <laughs> exactly and look um the interesting thing is everyone will say, I want to know the truth. I yeah. want the truth until they hear it. Yeah, when they hear it, that's, um, that's when they're like, oops, I, I wish I could unhear that. And that's what I mean by mm. once you've taken the red pill, you can't go back. You can't unhear yeah. the truth. It, it yeah. penetrates and it can be quite damaging. So I think um, there's definitely a, um, a happy medium in there. But um, I think uh, part of the issue is how it's delivered as well. So obviously, if you're if you're aggregating feedback from uh, different sources, and then it, it's their feedback, right? And this is the the really mm. tricky thing for someone in in my role where I'm delivering that on the messenger. In effect, um, I I also need to take responsibility for that feedback. I need to yeah. filter that, and I actually need to say this is what I'm sharing with you because I believe this is going to be helpful for you. So the feedback's actually coming from me, and I think there's a really uh, there's a huge distinction, you know, for example, if um, a manager is having a tough conversation with someone in their performance review and they say, well, look, a lot of people in the team feel that you're not pulling your way, they're most likely going to cause resistance and rejection of that message, Yeah. right? Even if that's true and, and people have brought it to the manager's attention that they're not pulling their weight, um, what's more powerful is the manager to say, I, I, I feel and I need to share with you that you're not pulling your weight. But you have to see it as an act of love or compassion rather than, you know, being brutal with someone. I mean, that, that's the only way it really works. So just picking up on that, so as a manager, it's better that it's delivered as a truth. And I think the hardest thing as, as a manager or a leader is to deliver that message as if it were yours. Uh, but it's the only way I believe you can truly be compassionate um, as a leader, to deliver it coming from you, what is it that you need to share, and and often gets um, you know marred with emotion and and feedback mm. turns into an argument. I guess it sort of contradicts the 
the professional objective world we try to work in where everything is dehumanized it's uh, mm. even the language we use we try not to make it personal uh, i completely buck that trend uh, i i'm all about making it authentic and and sometimes that that comes with challenge really uh, not a fan of you know the the shit sandwich or you know mm. uh, giving someone a little bit of positive and the negative and then I'm, I'm guilty of that I do that all the time it was just I think it's well, just culture, cultured into me professionally you know yeah. like, well, it, and, and it, it is patronising I know that it is it is horrible it, to do that but it just comes so naturally yeah. for a lot of people who have been in leadership or management positions well and, and the reason why it doesn't work is is there's there's psychology behind it um, you've got uh, primacy and you've got recency you know primacy is uh, people tend to remember the first thing that was said in a conversation they also tend to remember the thing that um, came last and that's the most recent thing and uh, you know if you think about the shit sandwich uh, you know you say something positive at the start you say something positive at the end and then you give the real message you want them to hear in the middle um, but they only remember the start and the end so from a, a science standpoint it's it's really uh, not a, a smart way to deliver feedback because people get confused. Whereas if you if you share what you need to share with them, it's a very different outcome because mm. it cuts it cuts through a lot of the stuff that isn't relevant. So the shit sandwich doesn't work, is what you're saying, no. and it's backed by science. Mm. Um, how do you take the emotion out of those discussions, though? How do you make them real and authentic and personal mm. without getting emotional? Yeah. Yeah, look, it's, it's not easy, right? It's um, one of the best ways to do it is to, to stick to the facts and stick to what's real. Um, you know, often uh, what we think is real is not real at all. It's an interpretation. And usually there's not that, that many facts that are relevant. If someone's not performing, um, you can say you're not performing. And that's all you really need to share. Uh, but we tend to want to have a one-hour conversation about mm. all of this other stuff that's not really relevant and that's why the message gets lost um, mm. but to, to be really clear about what's real versus what's not is is one of the most powerful ways to do it a lot of managers feel uncomfortable doing that what are some of the tips you would give them I think that's why yeah. we default to the shit sandwich because it makes us feel better it makes it easier yeah. to deliver um, shitty news yeah yeah well one of, one of the first things is to, to get someone's um, buy-in and permission to, to have the conversation. So rather than walk in and, and just say, right, blah, 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 here's what I need to tell you to do differently or whatever it might be, to ask them what, what's their take? Um, how do you think things are going? You know, start with the question, lead with the question. And that creates, you know, a connection and, and establishes, um, you know, a conversation. So yeah, to, uh, yeah, start with questions and to balance the conversation, I think with um, sort of 50-50 statements and questions. Uh, that's a, that's another way to to reduce friction. It almost seems like on every single occasion where we communicate, we have to go through the ritual of establishing who I am, what my personality mm. is, my dominance or or my yeah. status in society, and we waste so much time doing that when we could just be saying this interaction is for us to solve or yeah. agree on or to do this look I, I think it comes back back to you know survival and and those mm. that belong those that belong in the group and they they know their place in the group and fit within the hierarchy um they survive those that that don't belong i.e they don't connect and they don't um you know have have a position they don't survive very long right mm. so so part of 
part of that conversation, that building rapport and that social connection is, I think it just links back to survival, uh, survival in a culture, survival in society. And so I think it's actually quite an adaptive behavior, but, um, when you know somebody and it's about avoiding, uh, getting to the point, yeah, I think that's that's maladaptive. It's just part of the human condition, isn't it? We all do it. But it goes back to your truth. Like, if we can just mm. acknowledge that we're doing this and we can yeah. look at the rituals and occasions where the context is right to strip away the nonsense, essentially, and just Absolutely. get to the heart of exactly the purpose of this discussion. Yeah. You know, an example of... Um of what that sounds like when sometimes I get approached by organizations that want to partner with me and they want to do a 360 or, or whatnot. And I'll ask, um, what, what's the purpose for, for the 360? What do we want to get to? Uh, what's the outcome you're looking for? And they'll say, oh, look, you know, this is, this is about, you know, giving them an opportunity to grow and develop as a leader. And, and you know, I've, I've been doing this for a while and sometimes it doesn't sound like that's legitimately what they're after. And I said, well, you know, it's okay if, um, if your intention is, is not to grow this leader, if you don't think they're going to be around and, and this is actually more about performance management. That's actually the conversation they want to have sometimes. It's really tough to balance personality and performance sometimes. You know, mm. there are certain personalities that might be really good at their jobs, mm. but they are poison to the team. What takes precedence? Is, it, is performance performance mm. is inherently linked to objectives and KPIs, then you've mm. got personality and the cultural engagement-based metrics yeah. could be falling there. What takes priority from an organisational standpoint? Look, it depends on the organisation, but I'd say, um, unfortunately, the scale uh, leans toward uh, performance. And so, mm. you know, particularly, say, in a sales environment, the example would be you might have a really amazing salesperson who hits their targets and they're rewarded for it with their, um, their, their bonuses, uh, their commission. But from a team standpoint, they leave a path of destruction behind them. Uh, they're internally uh, combative. Um, they're negative uh, when it comes to the team. Great with customers, but internally they're horrible. But it's not pulled up because they bring in revenue for the business. Um, yeah. To me, um, it comes back to culture and the culture is only ever as good as the behavior that uh, senior leadership are willing to tolerate. You know, uh, culture is a whole other topic and it's obviously yeah, something I'm, I'm very fascinated about. But we, could get yeah. you, we could get you back in to talk about culture. It's almost <laughs> like atrophy, isn't it? If it's ignored for too long, what happens? If it's not addressed and it's not dealt with, then um, the, the people that don't want to be part of that will leave and it continues to spread and so some people take it on as oh, this is how we need to behave and this is how i i succeed here and so they start to perpetuate the the behavior i see what and mean, so yeah. yeah and so so it's sort of like a a rotten apple in a bowl of fruit right if mm. you leave it in there everything else ripens really quickly and it all goes rotten faster than if mm. none of it was rotten to start with so um, you've got to remove the, the rot, otherwise it just spreads. And uh, yeah. unfortunately, um, if, if the desire is to hit the number, um, the fear associated with removing that, that individual who may be a very uh, high performer from a uh, revenue standpoint is, um, yeah, is too great. And so I've seen, I've seen that a lot over the years where that's tolerated and, and sometimes encouraged. Uh, mm. 
aren't it? Mm. What I would deem really unacceptable, counterproductive, unsustainable behaviour, and good, authentic people uh, have have been have suffered as a result. You, you talked about purpose a little while ago. How how, mm. how much influence does purpose have, and do you think it's important for individuals and organisations uh, to yeah. have a purpose to yeah. work towards? Yeah. Yeah, so it, it, it purpose is um, it's probably one of my favourite topics to talk about. It's um, I think it's incredibly important for people not just to, to have a purpose. I think everyone innately has a purpose. Uh, it's whether they tap into it and align to it that matters. Every organisation has a purpose inherently, whether it be selling products or providing service. But it's it's what sits beneath all of that that matters more. And, and the individuals that work within the organisation, do they align their own purpose to the organisational purpose? Bringing you back to Gallup, uh, the eighth question in the employee engagement series is uh, the mission and purpose of my organisation or of the organisation makes me feel my job is important. Mm-hmm. So that really has two parts to it. I understand the mission and purpose and more importantly, it makes me feel like my job is important. There's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's the, the last part of it that really matters. If it doesn't make you feel like your job's important, then maybe you're in the wrong job or maybe the, the purpose of the organisation is, is a bit meaningless. Going back to truth, organisations really need to do the same thing as an individual before they can truly understand then articulate their purpose they've got to go through this process of truth and it goes back to where we started with the red pill or the blue pill yeah correct and and so from an organizational standpoint um, the best way to see yourself and to evaluate whether you're being experienced the way you want to be experienced is to ask your key stakeholders and so part of getting that true perspective is is asking your customers or your clients or whoever it is that you deal with about the alignment that you have to your your values or your strengths or the weaknesses or the products or whatever it is that that you're uh, pushing forward um, so so gaining that that insight is critical in order to not define your purpose I think that's that's different it's 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 by nature of, of what the organization does it's in there already it's it's mm. highlighting it but then it's how uh, understanding how is it experienced by your customers how is it experienced by your key stakeholders people do behave differently in groups but organizations as entities Mm. there are so many comparisons with individuals and there's a bit of a contradiction you know so 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 from my perspective you know i I guess i'll ask a question who experiences the organization individuals uh, groups of individuals but when you break it down, I when still buy the Apple computer and exactly. I take it home as an individual and use it as a user right. on my own. Yeah. yeah. And, and so your experience of the organization is a reflection in a moment. When you talk about truth and the experience mm. of an organization, mm. it reminds me of something um, Yuval Noah Harari said in Sapiens. Yeah. And I can't quote it verbatim but it was something along the lines of we've created these uh, belief systems and Mm. companies brands um, like apple google even Mm. the presidents of the united states they're all they all rely on belief otherwise they just wouldn't exist but is that truth or is that (laughs) what is that is that it's almost like 
Yeah. It's, it's a really philosophical question because it is. what is it? The truth really is that there are mm. trees and there's the ocean and there's the sky and we're on a planet in yeah. the soul. Yeah, that is real truth. But yeah. everything that isn't those tangible hard truths, mm. it's just belief, right? So I'd say when someone's um, deliberating or they're not sure about a decision or a path, so if it's in coaching, they're not sure where they want to go or, you know, they're, they're confused. When you ask someone, well, what do they feel? What's actually happening for them, you know, in their body? And like, to your point, is it a physiological sensation and experience? Yeah. That That's where it, it gets to truth, right? Yeah. That's where you start to think, okay, now I understand what's going on. And look, a great example of that, and I mean, it sort of comes back to Bruce Lee and why he's had such a, a massive impact on the world. It comes back to honest expression. Right? Yeah. If he wasn't so honestly expressing himself with all of who he was, then we wouldn't experience that those movies that he made and, and his yeah. persona in such a powerful way. And it wouldn't have had the impact that it did. Yeah. So what yeah. makes it true is the experience that you have. And, and that's why... Um, you know, for an organization, see, stepping outside of the organization and seeing it from the outside in is the way to understand well, how is it being experienced. Same for an individual. How are you being experienced? I really think about how we can empathize with others who are having an experience mm. that we may not have ourselves. And it mm. does go back to the events of both COVID and of what's happening in America mm. with experiences, people acknowledging that people yeah. will and do have different experiences. How can yeah. we acknowledge that and yeah. do more to address um, those misalignments, whether that yeah. they be those they perceive themselves or what we perceive being the third party to someone else's experience, you know? Yeah. Um, it's really, really fascinating, and it's quite timely that we're talking about this. Yep. You've given us so much advice and so much to think about, and I'd love you to be able to wrap that up or bundle that up into a little bite of wisdom. If you were to say something to people now in the current context, you know, we're all a little bit beaten, we're all a little bit bruised, there's a lot mm. of shit going on. What would your little bite of wisdom be for them? Mm. Yeah, so despite despite all of what has happened and, and some of the challenge that people are facing, um, use this as an opportunity to identify for yourself what's most important to you. But don't stop there. Once you know what's most important to you, do yourself a favor and, and quit lying to yourself and take that action, do that thing, follow that path that you've always wanted to. Because on the other side of you taking that action, it's going to get tough. It's going to get really tough. But that, my friend, that's the truth. I love it. <laughs> that is so good. That's one of the best ones we've had because that's really powerful. Quit lying to yourself. Uh, well, it's, one thing to, it's, it's one thing to lie to someone else, but it's a whole lot harder to lie to yourself. Yeah, yeah. I love it, mate. I thank you so much for your time. I know I've taken no, a fair bit you. of it. That's awesome. Um, this it. has been a fantastic chat. We've got to do it more often. I've learned so yeah. much about you that I wouldn't have known otherwise. Sure. Hey, Joe, before we go, though, before we go, because I, mm. I really want um, the listeners to be able to reach out to you. I'm sure you could help them with a whole host of situations they may be in or may be mm. moving into. Where can people get in touch with you? What's your website and contact details? LinkedIn is my, my usual platform, so you can find me there uh, pretty easily. 
But in terms of my website, it's uh, joehart.com.au. So that's pretty easy to remember. I do have a weekly blog that I write as well. So if people are interested in some of my ideas and what I, I talk about, I write that weekly and so you can subscribe to that. Um, and yeah, just drop me a line. Always, uh, always willing to uh, have a conversation and, and see where I can support people and uh, either help them with their team uh, or in their organization, anything leadership development, culture, uh, personal growth, um, I'm, I'm happy to support people with. Are you up for a heart-to-heart? I had to do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm up for a heart-to-heart anytime. anytime <laughs> a heart-to-H-A-R-T. That's right. it's Joe Hart spilt H-A-R-T. 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 Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Joe, thank you so much, mate. I really appreciate it. Absolute yeah. pleasure talking to you, man. It's been really helpful. Likewise. And um, I'm sure the listeners will absolutely love it. So. Thank you so much, James. Appreciate it. Mate, and I really need to see this juggling. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and I yes. need to see oh, some no. of your, your graffiti. I need to see some of your pieces as well. So share those with me if you can. For sure. Cheers, Will brother. Will do. Will do. See you, mate. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word, jamesbside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me, and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers.